Hey guys, this is part two of our lecture on the habits of grace. So we said that this part two would be more about our experience and the means of grace. So defining a little bit more about what that means and then also what it can feel like, because I think that there um, can be some significant tension there, particularly related to what we talked about at the end of the first lecture about this dual nature of sanctification. So as a recap, in lecture one, we said that Living by faith is a cultivation of practices that restore and restore us as whole people in cooperation with the spirit. We also said that these practices are intentional mindsets and actions cultivated to mortify sin and vivify Christ in our whole selves and our daily life. So we talked also about kind of, uh, you know, that's a nice just tied up with a bow sort of key point, right? But this process, the Bible describes this process as a journey of gradual ascent to God. This journey is one of love. It is by love and it is to love as mapped out by Christ. This journey then also has two agents, us and the Holy Spirit. And it has two particular aspects, mortification and vivification. And truthfully, and I'm sure you know this in your own experience, this whole dual aspect of it can make it really confusing because we carry within us both the voices of life and death. Our self doesn't want to die. We don't want to die to self. That is why it's called death. It is not enjoyable or pleasant or desirable. If it was, it would not be called death or self-sacrifice. And so to a certain extent, we are at war within our own selves. One voice trying to convince us um, that it's okay and to justify our sin and to, um, to, to just sort of tell us to follow our desire and et cetera, et cetera, right? And then there's this other voice within us trying to convince us to choose the better story. And sometimes those two voices, it's very clear, which is sort of of um, the enemy and the world and the flesh and, and which is of the Lord. And sometimes it's, it's actually not, not so clear at all. So our self doesn't want to die to self. And then there, another component that can make it really confusing is that our self doesn't know how to live in God. We don't know how to live in God. Sometimes we get so used to warring with our own desires that we forget that God is the fount of all desire. And so we get so focused on mortification um, that we feel really uncomfortable with vivification. We don't know what to do or, or how to do it, or it feels wrong to pursue pleasure within God, right? But we were created to enjoy God forever. We were created to enjoy God forever. But we were born enjoying sin. And so we have a tendency when we first to believe to put to death all enjoyment. Because we, we don't know how to sort these things out or how to sift out what is true and what is not true. We know that we were born enjoying sin. And so we put to death all enjoyment. We can be so focused on being sinners that we forget we were created saints. Born sinners, yes. Created saints. So we struggle to understand this tension in our own selves. The world doesn't make it any easier, right? The world is not 
for us. Culture teaches us to embrace more of our own selves and live into our truth, into your true self, etc. And yet, um, there is, of course, there is a kernel of that. There is a kernel um, of truth in that, and um, there is a component of grace to some of that, and authenticity, which can be part of the Christian life, absolutely. But there's also a dangerous temptation to justify our sin and our corrupt desires by saying, that's just who I am. That's just my truth. So the world is not for us um, in that sense, uh, but it's also not for us because we live in a world of instant everything, hurry and urgency and online and at your fingertips. But this, this is a journey of patience and gradual transformation. Um, I like this quote from one of the books that I was reading. Um, the author is Kyle Strobel, and he writes this, eternity is lost in the immediacy of our world. We hardly have time to wait for someone to make our latte, much less, much less to set our minds on Christ who sits at the right hand of God. And isn't that true? I cannot wait for someone to make my coffee without checking my phone and figuring out who has sent me a message or who needs me or doesn't need me or who do I need or what do I need to buy? Um, I can't even take one moment uh, to train my mind to sit and dwell upon the glories and beauties of Christ. So who then do we turn to if we cannot trust ourselves and we cannot trust the world? Well, you probably already know the answer, Sunday school answer, right? God, the spirit casts the vision through the word and we put it into practice. The spirit empowers through grace and we put in the effort. So the spirit does the work in some ways, and yet it can feel like we do the work. Um, I had a shirt from a camp and this is not a perfect summation of these two agents, but I do really like it. And it is a helpful reminder at times it said, pray like it's on, or work like it's on us, pray like it's on him. Work like it's on us and pray like it's on him. So the spirit casts the vision. The spirit um, tells us where we are going, sets out the road for us, calls us to do it, gives us the strength to put one foot in front of the other. And yet we still put it into practice. And the spirit is the one um, that gives us the grace to start. It gives us the grace to continue. So historically, um, this kind of journey that we're talking about, the church has practiced uh, and what we call the means of grace or spiritual disciplines. Now, discipline is kind of a funny word. And I think that for those reasons, a lot of people have changed. They've used other words to talk about it, spiritual practices or um, other kinds of ideas. Um, but there is a reason that we historically have used the word discipline. So why discipline? Well, Discipline has two basic meanings, right? It can be corrective where you are, um, there's a corrective component, right? So there is a discipline that comes as I am parenting my child, my three children, when they are doing something they should not do, I will discipline them because I want them to learn the discipline of not doing that thing, right? So for whatever right now, that is plugging things in good grief. This child just, he sees a plug and he wants to plug it in. He sees something that's plugged in and he wants to unplug it and then plug it back in, which is extraordinarily dangerous for his age. Right. And so there is a corrective component that has to happen. I have to correct his behavior and get him to stop doing that. So you can see how this is kind of related to mortification. Now this 
I think is sometimes the first thing that we think about when we think about discipline. And this is why some people feel uncomfortable with this idea because not all discipline is about mortification or not all spiritual practices are about mortification. There's another component to how we use the word discipline, right? There's another component. The other piece of it is a training component, right? We learn discipline. That man is really disciplined. That woman is really disciplined in the way that she does this or does that. In fact, to achieve anything that's worth achieving, you have to be disciplined. Uh, and so there is a training component. So you can see then that that component maybe more closely relates to vivification. So really in our spiritual practices or our spiritual practices should have components, both of putting off and of putting on putting off and putting on. Um, now that sounds really nice and easy and cute in categories and little boxes with bows and all of that. But how many of you have trained for something like truly trained? I'm guessing that if you didn't raise your hand, it's uh, probably because you know that training is really hard work, you know? Uh, retraining my body to bend, lift and twist again and building muscles that I originally had but are now corrupted it's really hard work. It's frustrating. It's not fun. And I do not always want to do it. Can't always see the progress. And I don't always enjoy um, either the process or the outcome, right? Part of that is because I've become so familiar with my pain that I don't have a clear vision anymore of what I'm working for. I don't remember what it feels like to not be corrupted. So that is a component of discipline. That's kind of a place where we can get stuck, I think, a little bit. But let me contrast that or my current experience with a different experience that I had related to training. So um, I had our first, or we had our first daughter. I gave birth to her. I'll talk about discipline and hard experiences. Um, so I gave birth to her, and I think she was like maybe a month old. And my husband, Brian, was trying to convince me that we should plan a trip to go climb the tallest mountain in Europe, Mont Blanc. And I thought he was out of his mind. So I put him off for as long as I could. And eventually, uh, which really was not that long, because if you know him, he is very persistent. Um, he talked, he was like, no, we have to do this. It's going to be great. He talks to me and I'm like, how, first of all, how am I going to get myself physically in shape in order to do that? And how on earth do you think I'm going to leave an eight and a half month old, you know, for a week, or it was actually more than that to go climb a mountain. Um, but again, persistence won out. I was hormonal. I don't know. I said, yes. So I committed to this thing. Uh, and at first it was like, okay, it's far off. It's whatever. Then we get closer and closer. And all of a sudden I'm realizing this thing is going to happen. It's going to happen. We've paid the money. We've committed. We've bought the flight tickets. We've figured out how to like uh, childcare, all of that. And, um, I'm going to have to do this thing. And I am going to be climbing a tall mountain, a dangerous mountain. In fact, and if I'm going to do that, then I better get my rear end into shape. And they had given us some very specific training goals that would kind of tell us like, you know, are you going to do this or help you get, kind of be barometer for, could you possibly make it up the mountain? Cause it is extraordinarily um, hard work. And so all of a sudden I'm like, I have to train for this. So I am running and I am running stairs and I am um, spending my time uh, doing this and lifting weights and all this sort of stuff. And why am I doing all of this? Well, there's these two tensions, right? There are two things that are pushing me into all of this training. There is a fear that is driving me because I am so afraid of what happens when I get on that mountain. And what if I can't do it or worse? What if I get hurt because I was not prepared 
you know? So I am afraid. There is a fear driving me. I have to be able to do this. But more than only that, there is desire pulling me because I see what it is um, that I'm headed to. And I want to get there. I want to get up that mountain. I want to prove to myself that I can do it. And so as I am training, I am compelled or driven by fear and compelled by desire. That is what the Christian life is like. We train and we run and we go out there and we do it when we hate it and when we don't feel like it. And sometimes we're doing it because we feel like fear is compelling us. And sometimes we're doing it because the better vision draws us on. Now, because they did give us some of these different goals, as I was training, um, I would experience sort of these small glimpses along the way, right? So we experience the power of small glories in the training. I would get excited because I hit that mark and I would think that excitement would drive me further into the training. But at the end of the day, we're doing it not for those small glories. We're doing it for something more that is to come. When I got to the top of Mount Blanc, so I did make it. What happened? I don't know how to explain to you with words what I felt. The elation, the beauty, the accomplishment, the achievement, the glory, the gratitude, this overwhelming sense of it was all worth it. It truly was a transformational experience I carry in my bones. And in that moment, what do you think I thought about all my training to get me to the top? Do you think I regretted it? No. I was grateful for every single minute and only wish that I had done more. I wish that I had denied myself more because I understood and felt in my bones and every aspect of my soul that those light and momentary troubles of the training were so worth the greater enjoyment that came at the top of the mountain. So what I'm trying to say is this, our goal in the Christian life is communion with God. Communion with God incorporates our whole humanity, including and crowned by, in fact, our emotional or affective selves. To commune with God is an affective experience, right? To get to that communion, use whatever metaphor you want. You're climbing a mountain, you're hiking, you're transformed, you're disciplined, you're running a race, we're practiced. Whatever that, whatever metaphor you want, it will involve both mortification and vivification. That means that it will have components of breaking bad emotional habits and creating healthy emotional habits. It'll have components of emotional healing and emotional regulation. This is a very long way of saying sometimes it will not feel good. It did not feel good to go from having a baby to trying to run a 10K in less than an hour. But there were moments when it did. There were moments when it did feel good. And those moments helped spur me on to the greater good that was to come. And I know that whenever I experience the greater good, 
I will not regret for a moment the difficulty of training because sometimes that training is hard and sometimes that training is great. But whatever it is, it will be so worth it when we get to the end. So again, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes these things that we do will not feel good and sometimes it will feel good. Feelings are a part of this process, but they are also in process. Feelings are a part of the process, but they are also in process. We can trust, we cannot, excuse me, we cannot trust them to tell us if we are doing it right or wrong, but we can receive when we experience a transformative moment of communion. Okay, we cannot trust them to tell us if we're doing it right or wrong. They're not particularly trustworthy. We can receive when we experience a transformative moment of communion. So um, I, let me put that. I actually think I just realized I have some slides for that. So let me put those up for you. Feelings, the goal that we are headed for is communion with God. That ultimate communion will far exceed anything that we could experience here and now. Communion is an affective experience. It has feelings attached to it. So it is not wrong to desire to feel something in our practice of faith. It's not wrong. But we cannot make those feelings the goal or the measure. We cannot make those feelings the goal or the measure. Our faith practices will involve breaking bad emotional habits and creating healthy emotional habits. Feelings are a part of the process, but they are also in process. And we have to allow them to be in process and trust um, the destination, trust where we are headed. So let's get back now to this other title that we talked about um, called the means of grace. So I'm about to walk through a list Oops. Um, a list of things that we can do to practice faith. And I've just told you that you should do them, whether you feel like it or whether you don't. Um, I've also said that where the spirit directs and empowers, you provide the effort. But I want to be really careful to say this. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot. That is already done. You do not do these things simply to be a good Christian or because it will get you something, whether here or in the future. You cannot obtain grace for yourself by doing the right things. You simply cannot. Because the grace that has already been accorded to you far exceeds anything that you could ever earn. Put another way, you cannot change what God thinks about you by your faith practices. You just can't. You cannot change what God thinks about you. He has already declared you righteous. He has already cleared your guilt and attributed Christ's righteousness to your name. Christ intercedes for you now and forever, regardless of what you do. So why then do we do these things? Well, you cannot change what God thinks about you by your faith practices, but you can change what you think about God. What? What does that mean? Okay, to be fair, I kind of worded it in a way that was like a little bit sticky just to get it to stick in your mind. And that's not really not the best way to say it. But what I mean is this. You can change the way that you think about God. 
Every day, we make small decisions that demonstrate our values, what we love, our habits, our frustrations, our wallet, our calendar, our temper tantrums, the time that we exploded at our kids or our boss or the person that works for you or the post office lady because of who knows what reason. All of that, they demonstrate what we truly love. I hate to break it to you, but all of those feelings that you've had during COVID, all of those decisions that you have made, the hurt feelings that you've had, the anger and the frustration, the judgment of others, those two reveal your values and what you truly love. Conscious or unconscious, our actions and mindsets, mindsets cultivate either a greater allegiance to the kingdom of self or to the kingdom of God. Conscious or unconscious, these decisions that we make on a daily basis cultivate either a greater allegiance to the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. So maybe pause and ask yourself, what was the last time you had kind of an explosion of emotion or feeling? What was really going on there? What were you really afraid of? What were you really valuing? What was really in danger? I know this is a very, very small thing, but that, that's sort of the point, right? That it's small. Um, a very On a very small level, sometimes I'll find myself getting so frustrated at my kids. And then I'm like, why am I getting so frustrated at them? You are four years old. Of course, you can't put on your own shoes. I'm expecting you to do something you cannot do. And then I'm yelling at them um, to get in the car and go do this. Um, Why can't you put your own shoes on? Why'd you put them on the wrong feet? Why can't you find your own shoes? And then I realize I am exploding because I'm worried about being late. And I am worried about being late because I care about what other people think of me. I am more concerned about what other people think about me being late than I am about my child being four, just being four. That is a small example. Um, But if you really want to ask yourself this question, then I would say open up your calendar and look at where you spend your time and open up your budgeting app or your bank app or whatever and see how you spend your money and see uh, what kind of allegiance you are cultivating in those practices. So you cannot change what God thinks about you by your faith practices, but you can, in these small ways, change how you think about God. You can attribute to God greater value and honor and love by what you do. So we cultivate I put up, yes, we cultivate practices or intentional actions and mindsets to take what is a spiritual reality, what God thinks about us, and live into that spiritual relationship. I have been adopted and I am trying to live into that family. These things that I do do not change my familial relationship to God, but they do change my participation in my enjoyment of the family. So we're taking a spiritual reality and we're living into the spiritual relationship. Okay. You cannot, oops. So why then do we do them? Oh, my apologies. You guys, technology is just not always my, uh, I lost a slide in there. So 
by cultivating practices. So sorry, you'll just have to listen to this one by cultivating practices that help us break that allegiance to the kingdom of self and build allegiance to the kingdom of God, whether big or small, like not yelling at my child or major decisions about where I live or what I do with my vocation, et cetera, whether big or small in the spiritual dimension or in the physical dimension, we cannot earn grace, but we can put ourselves in the way of grace, right? So another way to put it, I guess, is I cannot make a horse drink water, but I can lead it to the stream, right? Or um, it kind of makes me think about being in high school. I had a lot of crushes in high school. It's kind of boy crazy, which might explain why my six-year-old, or actually she was five at the time, has like already developing crushes and whatnot, which is highly disturbing and also comical at the same time. Um, but regardless, I was very boy crazy. And so, you know, whoever, whatever boy I had a crush on at the time, um, you know, I would, it's like, I would kind of know more or less like where their classes were, et cetera. And so I wouldn't maybe, it's like, I'm not going to go talk to them necessarily, but I'm going to maybe put myself just like where they would be just in case, you know, just in case I happen to be able to go talk to them. Now, obviously I'm not going to just like wait outside their class and be a stalker, but I'm just going to, just going to be around. And that's, that is maybe not my best illustration, but that is kind of what we're doing with the means of grace. I cannot force God's hand. If I could, then these would be magic tricks, right? And it wouldn't be grace. I cannot force God's hand. The truth is I don't know how the spirit moves or where the spirit will move because the spirit does things that are mysterious to us and works in ways that are far beyond us, right? So I cannot force God's hand, but what I can do is this. I can put myself where I know his hand is at work. And that's why we call them the means of grace. The means of grace. We do, they're not the means of grace in the sense that we earn them, but they are means by which we approach grace. We follow grace. We pursue grace. And we do them knowing that I cannot force his hand, but that when those um, transformative moments of communion come in that moment. It is the work of the spirit and God alone. It is a, it is a work of grace, but I put myself where I might be able to experience it. So this, I guess I could have ended this, my apologies. Um, this is why we describe them as the means of grace. And in this next lecture, we're going to talk about what exactly those means of grace are. Where does God work? I cannot force his hand, but I can follow um, where he goes. So how do I do that? What does that look like on a daily basis?